while we're waiting for people to filter in, if you guys could turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, that's where we'll be. And this week, um, well, this week we will be getting through, the goal is the first half of verse 12 as well as verse 11. So, uh, but we'll be reading, uh, once again, the whole section from verse 11 all the way through to the end, verse 15. And uh, just like last week, I read out of a a translation that you're probably not familiar with, a translation that's a commentator's unique translation of this text. And I mentioned last time, the reason I want to do that is because I want to give you guys different ways of encountering the text. Uh, This week, instead of reading out of the ESV or whatever translation you have in front of you, I'll be reading out of, in this case, it's a different commentator, different translation of the text. It's just another way to kind of get at the words and try to ask the question, what's going on in the text and what is Paul getting at. Different English translations help us to understand what the thrust is of what Paul's arguing for uh, in Greek. And a little bit of what we'll do tonight is engage with some Greek definitions. So I want to make it as accessible as possible. So in this case, another English translation of the text. I'll be starting to read that in uh, verse 8 of chapter 2. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, reads, Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves with no elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothing, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not the one who was deceived, but it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with all propriety. We just open us in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for this time together to be in your word, uh, to wrestle with it, and to ask uh, it to shape our minds and, and mold us closer to the image of your Son. Uh, would it become clear, uh, at least as so far as we are able to tonight, uh, by the grace of your Spirit, um, understand these words, uh, make them applicable to us today, uh, and we're aware of how we need your grace in all of those pieces. We pray this all in your name. Amen. All right, so last week I opened us with more of like a primer on the text of 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, 11 to 15. And at that time, I kind of went through a couple of ideas that we always want to have in mind when we are studying a text of Scripture. First and foremost, we want to know what is the order of importance for understanding a text? How do we know what a text means? Uh, And we want to go first and foremost what the text says, what Scripture says. And then we want to go with how has the church historically understood this text? Because that tells us not just what the text says, but also how the Holy Spirit has inspired men and women down through the ages to understand and apply verses. And then we want to apply our own minds, our own reasoning, our own thoughts to the text of Scripture. And we also want to ask the question, does this match my lived experience of the world, right? Because experience does inform how we understand truth. But what we don't want to do is we don't want to flip the script and put experience at the top rung of the ladder. And and we don't want to put reason on the top rung either because both reason and experience, those last two that I mentioned, are subject to our own cultural biases. They're subject to our own presuppositions that are kind of imperceptible to us. If you've taken a college class in the last 10 years, you've probably heard the term unconscious bias, 
right? You're probably familiar with the language of unconscious bias or a presupposition, something that you hold uh, without actually being aware that you hold it, okay? And reason, our own reasoning, is affected by our presuppositions in a way that's imperceptible to us. And so too is our experience. We interpret the world around us through our presuppositions. What's not so subject to, uh, to cultural influence, being influenced by this moment in time, is tradition, the tradition of the church, and scripture, what it says itself, right? Those things aren't influenced by our culture in the way that our own reasoning is and our own experiences are. So we uh, wanna keep that in mind as we're going through the text. Uh, because that will inform for us the importance of what we are, uh, what, what we're going to put as a first importance to get in line, and then we're going to try to get the other pieces in line. So this week, what I'm going to try to get us to do, at least for verses 11 and the first half of verse 12, is to at least understand all the words that are present, right? What does the scripture say? What do the words mean on their face value? If you were a fluent Greek speaker when this re- letter was written to Paul, uh, are you getting the sense of the words as they are meant to, to be communicated to you? And, and then we're going to ask the question, well, how does our own reasoning and culture influence our understanding of these words? So we're going to do that with verses 11 to 12 this week. So um, you might have heard it in the translation that I read, um, but this translation uh, says it this way from verse 11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. I'm going to pause there. That's as far as we're going to get in the exegesis tonight. Now, in the English Standard Version, it's a little bit different. Uh, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness or in full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And the translation I read out of says, assume authority over a man. You'll notice those differences, exercising authority or assuming authority. Actually, they all have uh, implications for us. And if you have a different translation, like an NLT or an NIV or something like that, or something different, they might say other things with, with regards to that authority translation because that's a disputed part of the passage. What does it mean in its context? So we'll pay attention to that, pin that in your mind. And we're going to ask the question, what does the term authority mean? So we'll be working through the text a little backwards. First, trying to establish what does the text say. And to understand that, we have to understand what the term authority means. Now, I'm going to give you a smattering of translations that try to translate this term, some negative and some positive. And this is uh, something you could get if you just looked up the text uh, and you went to Bible Gateway and you looked at all the different translations, you could kind of come to this conclusion. There are neutral ways to render the term authority, uh, such as exercise authority over or assume authority over or have authority over. Those would be in the ESV or the NLT or the translation that I read out of tonight. And there are what we would call negative renderings of the term authority or pejorative renderings. And to see those, I just want you to hear it because it'll make more sense when you hear it translated. I do not permit a woman to teach or to usurp authority over a man. Or, I do not allow a wife to teach or to control her husband. I do not allow a woman to instigate conflict towards men. These are all from the same verse, by the way. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. I never let women teach men or lord it over them. I do, it, I do not allow a woman to train or to dictate to a man what he ought to do. And then lastly, it is not my habit to allow women to teach in a way that wrenches authority away from men. So you hear the varying nuances in all of those translations, and that should cue you in as a student of the Bible. There's something going on with this term that's probably important to understand if we want to understand what the text says, right? We want to understand first the words and what they mean before we can even begin to interpret them and apply them to our context. 
So behind these varying translations is a Greek term, uh, which is, uh, the, the word is authenteo. Uh, it's where we get our English word authority from. And the question that every scholar has to ask when they're translating the text is, is authenteo, this Greek word, does it have a negative connotation to it? Or does it have a, a neutral connotation which is dependent on its context? We have words like this, some words that have negative connotations and some words that have neutral connotations. That's the question, does authenteo carry a negative connotation? Now many have asserted over the last dozen or so years that authenteo does irrefutably have a negative connotation. So when we translate this text, we have to translate it in a negative sense, meaning a wife dictating to her husband what he ought to do, or a woman usurping authority from a man, some kind of a negative wield of authority. We might say, Authenteo carries an abuse of authority sense, okay? But there's been a lot of work done recently, within the last 10 years or so, to establish the idea that authenteo is, if you look at the broader Greek literature, a neutral term. It depends on its context, how it's used. The reason we can't go to other terms in scripture to establish this is because this word occurs one time in the entire New Testament. It's, it's found nowhere else. And so we have to look at other uses, uh, what were early uh, Greek philosophers using it like, what were early Roman politicians using it like, what, what does the word mean? And we survey a large number of texts. And scholars come back and they say, this is what I think the thrust of the word is based on how it's used in various contexts. And the most recent study to be done in that light has shown, uh, I think, pretty convincingly that the term authority is neutral, meaning the rest of the context has to tell us whether that's a negative or a positive authority, but the word authority itself doesn't carry any weight towards that end. That makes sense? And then the question we can ask, a fair question, is does the context tell us it's a negative use of the term or a positive use of the term? And we can ask that question, but first we have to understand that the term itself is a neutral term. There's nothing in the word that demands it be inherently negative or inherently positive for that matter, okay? So this is the question we're trying to ask. What does the term authority mean? It's a neutral term used to rule or to dictate to someone. And if we want to understand whether it's negative or positive based on its context, just notice how the term is used, right? Paul is speaking specifically to women in verse 12 when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And if it's a negative use, like I do not permit a woman to abuse their authority over a man or to usurp authority from a man, and he's only giving the instruction to women, then we could rightly ask the question, well, if it's a negative use of the term authority, why doesn't he also instruct men to not abuse authority negatively? If you were to think about our society and really societies down through the ages, who has the proclivity to negatively use authority more consistently? Is it women or is it men? I think your own experience, uh, your own perception of the world and tradition of history past would tell us that when push comes to shove, men tend to abuse authority more than women do, simply over time because men have had access to authority more than women have. So why would Paul be giving an instruction to women not to abuse authority over men and not give that same instruction to men, given that he's giving unique instructions to men and women based on their temptations? What I think is happening here, I think a better way to render this text, is Paul is not using the term authority in a negative sense because Paul doesn't think authority should ever be wielded in a negative sense. But instead what he's doing is he's talking about rightly held authority is not to be given to women in this context. And, but the implication is men actually can hold authority rightly. And then the question we can ask is what does he mean by hold authority? But notice that he gives the command specifically to women. They can't hold authority, whatever that means. But he's, he's 
essentially saying, by giving the instruction only to women, he's saying, but, but men can, right? He's, he's not giving that same restriction towards men. So I don't think it's a negative use of the term, meaning uh, Paul's not saying men can abuse authority if they want, but women aren't allowed to. What he's saying is men can wield authority rightly, but women cannot wield that same kind of authority in that same kind of way. That's what's off limits. Okay? So that's the first translation issue. What, is, what does the text mean? Establishing the basis of the text. Okay. I realize that was a little heady, a little much. Now we're going to backtrack to probably more relatable thrusts of the text and pick up Paul's argument. And then by the time we get to where we just establish the basis of the text, it'll make sense why we put it in the reverse order. So last week, I, I made mention of the fact that when Paul says in verse 11, let a woman learn, there is the thrust of the text, right? The thrust of the text, when Paul's writing to his first century audience, the thrust is, hey, church, women should learn. And there's plenty of scholars who, who bring out this exact point that what Paul's not doing here is giving a large commentary on gender roles. But what he is doing is he's exhorting Timothy to ensure that women in his congregation are learners, just like the men are learners. So let me just give you a host of ways that scholars try to render this. Uh, you could say it as a positive command. Women must be allowed to be learners equal to men. Or a way another scholar says it is each woman was, and now also at Ephesus should be, taken seriously as a disciple every bit as much as a man should be. Or maybe another way, for women to worship the Lord rightly, she must take her place in a community that both enables and expects her to grow in faith by learning and eventually teaching what she has learned to others as well. The purpose of learning in a Christian church is so you can teach and instruct others what you have learned. This is the Great Commission. I made allusion to this last week. Women and men are given the Great Commission equally. And for them to carry that out rightly, both women and men need to learn and be instructed in the church. So the thrust of the text is that Paul is saying, Timothy, remember the, the letter is written to Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, when you're ordering worship in the church, men are to be the ones praying, make sure they're not hypocrites, make sure they're not uh, causing disruption. The women in your church, make sure that they're not causing disruption by how they dress and how they cause attraction to themselves. And, and by the way, Timothy, make sure the women are learning just like the men are in the gathered congregation. This is a, a point of emphasis, right? The command is not, first of all, to women, the women in the church, but remember, it's to Timothy. And he says to it this way, see to it, Timothy, this is one scholar's rendering of the thrust, see to it, Timothy, that the woman who seeks to learn does so. Meaning, it's Timothy's job as the pastor of the church to make sure that the women are being instructed in the same way the men are being instructed. No one's being left out. That's his job, his role as a pastor. Here's the thrust of the text. That's the command of the text. That's the point. In fact, uh, every church father for the first 500 years of the church comments on the text that far and no further. They don't get into everything that we have to talk about today with the text uh, because no one was questioning anything else in the text. The church fathers all emphasize the fact that women are to be learners, disciples, students of the word, every much as men are. And the rest of the text makes sense. Yes, not teaching, not preaching, things like that. No, no commentary, no scholarship, no, no uh, textual research beyond 200 years ago even touches the question of women pastors or women elders. No text to. In fact, if you go to Calvin's commentary or any historical commentary uh, pre-200 years ago, uh, you just simply won't find them even engaging with this question because no one was asking it. But what everyone's talking about is women are to be equal disciples with men. 
That's the point. Because that's what's radically different in this text. That's not different in other texts. Uh, other religions, other cultures, uh, in their religious influence and practice, particularly the certain sects of Judaism, did not allow the, the women equal rights to discipleship as they did men. Men were to be taught, men were to be learner, learners, and men were to be the ones who were to instruct their wives privately in the home. But the women weren't allowed to participate in the fellowship of the worshiping, believing community in the way that men were. Christianity is different. Christianity is a family, so it itself operates as the teaching organism for everyone else. Meaning women and men, both alike, are learners. They ought to be learners. And thus, we might say, let's observe an application today. Churches should teach their people and mature their people in the word so that their people can turn around and teach other people. What churches should not do is neuter their people's ability to learn and study scripture. If someone is in a church who wants to learn, who wants to study, who wants to grow in their knowledge of the Lord, it's Timothy's job, it's the church's job to facilitate that learning and make sure that they have access to it. That's the primary function and role of the church to instruct its members and its congregants. That's an on-the-ground application. You might say that has almost nothing to do with what you think we're going to talk about tonight because of the men and women dynamics. I just wanted to make sure you don't lose the thrust of the text. Timothy's argument, or Paul's argument in the text, is that Timothy's job is to guard worship. One of the ways he guards worship is making sure women learn in worship just like men do. Okay. Now on to the, let's say, modern questions that arise because we live in the Western world. In the modern world, we have to ask the question about uh, not just what does it mean to, uh, what does the term authority mean, but I posed the question this way last time. I want to make sure I, I'm sticking to the same questions, not reframing them. So the question I said last time is, well, what, is it, what does it mean for a woman to keep silent or uh, learn in submissiveness and quietly? And that's what we're going to try to spend the rest of the time tonight dealing with. What does it mean to learn quietly and learn with submissiveness? So here is uh, one way we could deal with the text. The, the term quietly... Uh, probably has more of a thrust of uh, learning in a peaceable way uh, rather than learning in a disruptive kind of way. So Paul's whole thing, remember, has been to guard the conduct of worship. Men are not to disrupt the worship by arguing or brewing conflict in the church, right? You see that uh, in, the, in the section on men, verse 8. They should pray without anger or quarreling, right? They're to do so quietly with, with keeping the peace, right? Women, likewise, are to keep the peace, not to draw attention to themselves in how they are adorned during worship, how they dress. So they're to do that, let's say, quietly behind the scenes so that the focus is on God and learning. And then we could say, even here, the thrust of women learning quietly doesn't actually change or uh, deter from that meaning at all. It keeps in the thrust of the passage, which is women are to learn in a state of quietness, uh, which is a word that's closely related to how he instructs the men to conduct themselves in the gathered church. In fact, uh, a close cognate of this word is used in verse 2 of chapter 2. So if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, when Paul is talking about how you are to pray, he says, so that we, we may lead a peaceful and a quiet life. Right? So here, he's, here Paul is telling all people to live a life that is quiet. Now, if I tell you to live a quiet life, I'm not telling you you can't speak ever. What I am telling you is live a life that is not causing disruption everywhere you go. That's the thrust of what that means, right? Similarly here in the text, Paul is not saying women cannot speak. What he is saying is women are to learn in a way that is keeping the peace in the gathered congregation. Women are present, but they're to keep the peace, okay? Just like the men are told to keep the peace by not quarreling or causing strife. 
So that's what the term quietly means. Don't, don't take that as a universal prohibition against speaking of any kind. That's just simply not what the word means. Okay? Now then the last uh, piece of te the text in verse 11, with all submissiveness or with submission. And I ask the question this way, what does the term submission mean? To whom are the women to submit? And what does it even mean to submit? Okay? So I'll try to answer those relatively briefly. The term submission, or what does it mean to submit, is colored in by Paul's broader use of the term. Now, if you think about the term submission as Paul uses it, that is never a unilateral endorsement without any kind of qualification. Here's what I mean by that. When Paul tells us in Romans 13 to submit to the governing authorities, he does not mean to do whatever the government tells you. Because if he means that, then the Nazis were right to tell the Christians to turn over Jews in World War II because the Christians have to submit to the governing authorities. But it's not without qualification. The Christians are to also vet what the government tells them through the lens of the word and through the lens of what God commands. So submission is not a unilateral decree, do whatever they say, and, and neither is it here. Women are to learn in submission to the word of God. Why would he say this? Men too are to learn in submission to the word of God, but for women, the learning of the word of God is a new thing which has not really been charted territory throughout the rest of uh, the centuries of Jewish practice. So because Paul's instituting, let's say, a relatively new practice, women are to learn, he's also saying, and in submission, kind of like how every other disciple learns in the congregation of the church, not causing disruption, they are to learn in submission. Now here's the question, who are the women in submission to? I, I set that question up kind of like a, it's supposed to be a person. But who the women are in submission to is is the word of God, or we could say God himself. The women are to submit to the teaching, which is the message that is being proclaimed, in the same way that other disciples submit to the teaching and the message that is proclaimed. The women do not need to submit to men universally, uh, to just deal with that quickly. Uh, this text does not, is not some kind of a text that you can take out of its context and say, therefore women unilaterally in every area and facet of society must submit to men in every area and facet of society because it has, it's bound by its own context and instruction. And remember, it's in a gathered worship with the assumption that teaching is happening and training is happening. So in that context, what does submission look like? It means you're listening and obeying the word of God. Now this instruction is given particularly to women, well, because remember, they're the new disciples on the block. They're the ones who Timothy is being taught how to instruct. And just like the men, they're to be quiet, they're to be learners, they're to be in submission to God's word. So their submission is with complete respect for the order of, let's say, Timothy, the elders who are mediating the word of God to them, but not in some universal sense like a cult group would say, women just have to listen to men. That's just not what the text means. People have taken it to mean that, and in English you might be able to construe the text to mean that, but that's just not what it means in its original thrust, right? The word submission is colored by its broad use in the New Testament. Okay. So then uh, the last piece that we want to deal with is is trying to put this all on the ground together. And to do this, uh, I've just kind of established for you what the text says, so the scripture level of authority. And here I just want to poke a little bit at, let's say, our own cultural presuppositions of the text of scripture. And here is an anecdote that one commentator gives as an example for this. And so I want you to, to hear these words, and then we'll comment on them. One New Testament scholar, her name is uh, Claire Smith, she tells the story of a new Christian uh, who's university age, so someone who's like 24, 25, 26, uh, from an ethnic-based church, meaning a church that's not Western. Okay? And she says this way, this woman read 1 Timothy chapter 2 for the first time. 
And when Claire asked the woman whether she found the text difficult, the woman replied, no, the text is easy. Paul is saying women shouldn't teach in church because that's the way God wants it to be. And now here's the striking thing that the commentator observes, and I think it's worth considering. It's just like we say that uh, we have, other cultures have biases and presuppositions. Maybe Paul had a presupposition or a bias. Maybe one of the reasons that in the West we find this text so difficult is because of our culture and our perceptions of how the world ought to function. The difficulties of the text may exist solely because of our cultural tradition and, and, and assumed rationale, not, not because there's actually any inherent difficulty in the text itself. Because if you take someone not from Western culture and they read this text, there's not really a problem for them, at least as this woman's uh, story illustrates. Now that is the reason we can't take our reason and our experience and butt them up against what the text says and say, I call into question what Paul meant when he said this. Because reason and experience are influenced by our culture. And we live in a Western, modern, egalitarian world, which questions anything uh, in the created order, uh, including anything that God would say is different between men and women, right? So we have to keep that in mind as we reason through this text to not assume a Western frame, right? This is a, a Middle Eastern book written by Middle Eastern and first century Greek men and established by the, the uh, God of the universe who knows what he's getting after. Now that, by the way, that doesn't settle all of the questions in the text. What I'm simply pointing out there is that our cultural presuppositions do influence us and, and we should keep that in mind as we wrestle through what the text is getting after. And, and here's maybe where we can land the plane for tonight, and I recognize we're going to do this over multiple weeks. Here's where I want to land it tonight. When, when we are wrestling with a text of Scripture, uh, when it says words like this, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, and we get offended at the fact that Paul would dare tell a woman to be quiet, it, it represents our own presupposition that, that the world ought to work in a certain way and Paul doesn't get it. And we miss the fact that what Paul is saying is women ought to be instructed just like men are, right? You, we miss that because of our culture. And so too, I think, in verse 12, when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, we, we miss it there too, because we say, well, why can't that be the case? Where other cultures, times, and even throughout the history of the church, they don't even bat an eye at this verse. They don't even really raise questions about it. And I think that should tell us a great deal about ourselves, the moment we live in, and how much we should trust our own reason and our own presuppositions as we try to work out this text. Now, there's much more to say on these verses. That's why we're breaking this up over a couple of weeks. But the thrust of what uh, Paul is getting at here, I think I want to make sure you get. Women are disciples equal with men. They are to teach. They are to instruct. We'll talk more next week about what that means and in what context. And then in uh, our final week together in this text, we will try to get to and deal with the argument from verse 14 onward. Uh, what, is the, what is the deal with going to Adam and creation in the fall? So these are the questions we still have left to answer. I've hopefully tried to answer three of the questions I posed in the first week. Um, and uh, in your discussion time, you'll get to hammer out some more of this in practical detail. So let me just close this in a word of prayer, and then we can get there. Father, we thank you for this time together in your word. Lord, we know that we are students of your word who sit under it, who sit in submission to it. And we pray that you would, by your grace, instruct us in all truth, that you would lead us, guide us, direct us, and Lord, that you would be pleased to teach us by the grace of your spirit. We pray this in your name. Amen.